Hey everybody, this is Brian coming at you from late 2022. You're about to listen to one of the original episodes of the Internet History Podcast, a project I started way back in 2014. It eventually became a book called How the Internet Happened, From Netscape to the iPhone, written by me, but these are the original chapters and interviews I did for that book. So here you have all the original oral history interviews, the original players of the internet era in their own words. You'll get hours more detail and stories here than I was able to even fit in the book. If you like this podcast, buy the book, but also the podcast stand on their own. Almost 300 hours of original source material of internet history. They've been downloaded about 3 million times over the years. And if you like what you hear here, search and subscribe to what I do today, the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast, a daily tech news podcast I've been doing since 2018. Basically, the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast is the history of the internet every day in real time. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. Everyone knows Karen Wickery because she's one of those classic connectors. Once we finally got in touch, I wasn't surprised to learn that we knew about half a dozen of the same people that we had never even remotely crossed paths ourselves. Karen knows everyone because she's popped up Zelig-like in a bunch of interesting places over the course of tech history over the last 30 years or so. Early tech journalism. Planet Out, early Google employee, early blogger, early tweeter, editorial director at Twitter. Karen has a great book out that you should read explaining how to do what she does so successfully called Take the Work Out of Networking, an introvert's guide to making connections that count. Please enjoy this especially wide-ranging conversation with the great Karen Wickery. Karen Wickery, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. Oh, thank you for having me, Brian. Well, it's been a couple years coming. I think uh, Cindy's been trying to get this in <laughs> for a while now. But yeah, um, the the simplest way to start for these sorts of things is either like education or, or whatever. But um, also sometimes it's interesting to get people's entree into computing generally. Uh-huh. So sometimes I ask, what was your first machine that was yours? Or what was your first... Because if you go back far enough to actually, that you couldn't have a machine that was yours, what was your first um, experience with computing generally? It was in 1984, and it was a K-Pro. I don't remember the model, but I had just moved to San Francisco um, to take a job at a nonprofit called Media Alliance, which was a membership organization of journalists. And uh, I'd long been a typist. I'd been on many Selectrics and, and earlier machines. But uh, the K-Pro was what was in the office of Media Alliance. And so I looked at this thing horrified. And I had to sort of learn my way around for some word processing. 
Um, but ironically, um, the second machine I had did not own came less than a year and a half later when I was hired away from Media Alliance to join David Bennell at uh, PC World Magazine and Macworld Magazine. He, he founded those uh, and it was um, under, it was a private company called IDG, International Data Group. And that was, I mean, that opened a lot of doors. Uh, and so my first machine there was probably a Macintosh 128, maybe? Uh, something like that. That, right, was, right, that right. was the entree. Um, this is mid-80s? Yeah, it would have been 85 when I joined IDG. Uh, and I think I saw on your LinkedIn that your your job was to try to dial up new titles and things like that, but were they supposed to be tech titles? Oh, yeah. This was all... Uh, so, so Bunnell is worth his own history. Sadly, he's no longer with us, but um, he... Uh, I learned this history very quickly when I went there that... that he had been essentially a journalist and, and got interested in um, home computing, personal computing, because at the time that was, this was the sort of liberating fact of life for lots of people. Everybody could be a publisher. And uh, so he had started PC Magazine through a business deal that uh, didn't end up being his. It went to Ziff Davis. But he started uh, a rival, PC World, and that's when IDG stepped in to acquire him and, and them. So um, he explained to me his history had been with the MITS Altair 88 and uh, Eddie Roberts and, Ed, you know, uh, that whole kind of earlier generation, which I knew nothing about. Um, so I learned to appreciate the history very quickly. Well, a couple of things. Uh, put a pin in that that you knew nothing about. But uh, I think, I can't remember who I was talking to. It's worth pointing out. Uh, to modern listeners that these were really sort of, you know, you think of the Engadgets and Gizmodos of the world today, and it's so they're sort of consumer publications. And, and PC World and all these were kind of consumer, but they were more industry-focused. And so it's not sort of like the gadgetry journalism as we would think of it today. It is some of that. There's a new machine. Here's what it can do. We'll give it a rating or that sort of thing. But it's also um, for throwing up ads that's the only place where these tech companies can even advertise, essentially. That's right. That's right. And in those days, there were many, many very small software companies. And within a year of my joining, David said, oh, you should come with me to Comdex. And, I, I mean, my mind was blown. This was a big trade show in Las Vegas that preceded CES. But I, I remember thinking, it's only 1985, 1986, where did this world come from with mm -hmm. this lingo uh, that they already have adopted? You know, everybody's comfortable, you know, using, uh, you know, these very odd terms. They've already got, uh, you know, sort of a style and branding, and it's a million companies I never heard. Like, where did this spring out, spring from, you know? And, of course, I, I understand it was a, essentially a lot of small businesses and, of course, some of the big guys, uh, most at, at that point, IBM was probably the biggest, and Intel, I suppose. Mm -hmm. um, but it was just a world unto itself. I felt like an anthropologist coming into this. Well, so then that's the, you, um, you don't have any uh, nerd background necessarily, and um, steep learning curve for you to get involved in this sort of world, or is it exciting also at the same time? It, it was exciting. Uh, and and here's the thing. I've always been 
uh, a pretty fast writer and editor. I've, I've been in office environments for a long time, and before that I was in smaller businesses and academia and nonprofits. But I'd always been around offices, so I knew kind of that dynamic of how offices worked and how people work in offices. So the subject matter I, I was a steep learning curve, and it, and it just took me a while to sort of get used to the lingo and what, what was being talked about. But the, the sort of comforting thing was nobody was really an expert, or there mm. were very few. Mm -hmm. There certainly weren't any really on the uh, magazine staffs, because it had just sprung up in the previous, what, five years or less, as far as personal computing went. And yes, it was corporate, but right. the, what people were touting was you're going to have your own machine, right. right, and your own software. And so, to me, it was you know, kind of intriguing, partly because I'm a liberal arts person. And so I felt like the, I must be the last person to know about this stuff. Turned out that wasn't true. No. But, um, yeah, it, 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 was, uh, it was a gradual learning curve, but I felt like I was learning along with other people. But that does put you on this path to the world of PR marketing for tech, essentially. Or at least understanding those people and that world. That and also editorial. Mm. Because I was, um, I always felt close to the editors and the reporters on the magazines. Mm -hmm. um, I'd had um, uh, not really a journalism. I'd studied journalism. I'd always felt too timid to go into it myself, mm -hmm. frankly, uh, when I was younger. Um, but I always admired people who could write clearly and make sense of things. And that was actually a mission of the IDG magazines, uh, predating Walt Mossberg a little bit, which was. Mm -hmm you know, this stuff is confusing and we're gonna right. like make it simpler for you. And uh, and they did try, and, and I appreciated that. And I was, um, I, I learned a lot that way. Um, for, and please correct me if I jump around too much in, in the timeline here. When it, do you remember your first um, encounter with online, and I'm not even talking about the web, I'm talking about maybe BBSs or Prodigy, whatever. I do, and it had to do with um, IDG and, and this uh, David Bennell's companies for this reason. So um, online, I mean, the, the first online I knew about was basically expensive pay-by-the-hour online. Partly that was because uh, since Macworld Magazine did some business with Apple, there was Apple Link. Mm -hmm. Apple Link, I believe, was a... A product of GE mm -hmm. and so there were early discussions I mean 80 88 let's say that I was in on that had to do with how can we make Macworld available on Apple link and not piss off readers by making them pay for the minutes when the ads are up mm. because it was it was $35 an hour yeah and uh, everybody understood we can't charge people to look at the ads the advertisers want to get in front of the readers or viewers. Mm -hmm. um, you know, how do we make that work? And uh, we didn't figure this out at the time. I mean, Apple Link was such, I mean, I, I, there can't have been more than 10, 20,000 people on Apple Link. I mean, right. it must have been tiny. Well, but then there's that weird, like, because GE goes off and does Genie. Yes. And then, um, but then also there's that weird connection that somehow that kept what would become AOL alive, because Steve Case made that yeah. deal with them, and then yeah. 
that kept them alive for a while before right. they uh, right. spun that out into AOL. But that anyway, that was my first. Yeah. I, I, that I felt like I barely understood because mm -hmm. I understood the the notion of the the content being online, but in these kind of private systems. And it, somewhere in that in that same period, I did get MCI mail. I did have. I tried them all. I tried CompuServe and Prodigy and Wow. You remember mm -hmm, Wow mm -hmm. and um, eWorld. I, right. I actually reviewed eWorld uh, for some long dead computer publication. But anyway, I, I got very interested in those when they became available. So that must have been 90, mm -hmm. 91, something like that. But anyway, my my first memory is of this Apple Inc. thing. And how do you, is it sort of you just you're, you're around and available, so you stumble into doing the journalism and doing the columns and things like that, just sort of accidentally, or? It, well, I mean, maybe accidentally, maybe because um, I, I was interested in these services. I did know how to write. I knew people who knew I knew how to write. Mm -hmm. And as, as people spun out of uh, the magazines, uh, as I did myself, 1989, uh, David Bunnell and the other founders' contract was up with IDG. So they left, and that left uh, that sort of corporate layer, including me, uh, out of a job. Mm. And I didn't want to align myself with any one of the magazines. I liked having this kind of horizontal role across mm -hmm. them, and there wasn't really that role anymore. So I started uh, consulting and doing some freelance writing. And by then, you know, more computer magazines were were out there, and uh, that—that's probably when I would review something like eWorld. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, but you—you yeah. you start to have a regular column around like what, ninety-three, ninety-four? Well, it would have been, F, it had to be ninety-four, ninety-five, okay. I think, because um, I was editing. Some of the writing got me into editing books for uh, computer publish computer book publishers, and uh, so I did one that was. Uh, an early guide to Netscape Navigator, mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, I remember this trade press was Ziff Davis Press, and I remember the editor said to me one day, we don't want to miss out on this World Wide Web thing, so would you be interested in doing a book on the web? So this would have been 94, and again, I was, not, I was by now independent, mm -hmm. and I said, yeah, sure, and immediately I thought, uh, I need to have a technical partner because I don't really understand the web, you know, what makes the web. But but yes, the opportunity to do a book, sure. <laughs> so um, I believe this was maybe the second of the consumer guides that came out. Right, because uh, who was it that did... Um... Ventana Press was one that I know. Uh -huh. And then the guys that got bought by AOL that had the first commercial website, I talked to them, I can't remember the name of the company right now. Because the reason they did a website is they were trying to do a guide to the web. Uh, and so they created a directory and they threw that online. I, uh, and then they threw ads up after that. Um, well, I'll try to put that in the show notes as well because I know that we talked to someone about that. Yeah. Um, but actually, uh, it's worth pointing out because we, I actually have the book in front of me, Atlas to the World Wide <laughs> Web. And of course, it has um, a CD inside it, which a lot of books did at that time, because again, as I've spoken to with other people, there was also, in this time, there was the whole CD-ROM boom, and that was supposed to be the next big thing, and That's then it right. sort of gets muddied because all of the energy of CD-ROMs and some of the talent that are producing these go in as soon as the web That's takes right. off and go to the web. That's right. That's right. And this publisher, Zip Davis, thought, 
I mean, they were they they did basically software update books. They made their money off of right. here's version 1.0. Next year, there's version 2.0. You know, and so this to them was you know kind of a little bit of more of a consumer departure. This is essentially a book of reviews, very short reviews of websites. And I remember in compiling it, I thought, I mean, I, I do believe I must have looked at the first thousand websites. Right, because that, that was possible. Yeah, that that's was what, possible. That's what like, Jerry Yang <laughs> says, is he's like, you could still, in an afternoon, yeah. visit the entire web yeah. if, if you're in 1994, certainly, early 94. You could if your ISDN connection <laughs> was up. <laughs> um, well, and it's... You know, uh, flipping through it, like, it, these, these are great, like, when I wrote the book, it's like, well, what was there in 1994 that interested people? And it's sort of an amorphous thing, because it's sort of everything and nothing at the same time. So, like, here's the whole frog project, which I mentioned in the book. You could dissect a, fro- a virtual <laughs> frog online, and, like, the National Institutes of Health are online, the IEEE is online, but what is, like, Le Cordon Bleu? It's a fancy, no, Le Cordon Bleu comes to the rescue, it's a... Oh, the menus from the world-famous cooking school. So you see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, it's very random. It's almost like no one knows quite what to do with the web. At the same time, everyone is like, oh, my God, we can do anything with the web. That's right. And and there's a big uh, theme, I think, in this book. A lot of things came out of academia, mm -hmm. right? So there were either directories or they would have done, you know, something based on some academic project or other because, of course, they were online uh, early. In fact... Right after I left, as one backtrack here, when mm. I left IDG in, in 1989, I fell pretty quickly into doing a consulting project for Addison Wesley, the big book publisher. And they were in the midst of, strangely, they had, they had one academic journal, and it was Stephen Wolfram's Mathematica journal. Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> they wanted to make a, uh, or sorry, they had, because they published, I guess, the Mathematica software or the guide or something, they wanted to make a periodical, the Mathematica Journal. Mm-hmm. And they didn't, I mean, this little division that was doing this, they had no experience with periodicals because books. Mm-hmm. So um, they hired me to put together a plan for what would be needed to make a periodical, which I knew enough about by then to say, well, here, you know, it, for them, it was quarterly, but the same idea as a magazine, sort of like here's what you need for someone to do look after circulation and and you know someone for production and so on. And so I worked with them for uh, maybe a year or more. Flew to Champaign, uh, Urbana, met mm-hmm. with Stephen Wolfram. I mean, you know, their academics idea of a periodical was very different than my idea <laughs> of a magazine. I must say, however. Um, that was maybe one of my first inklings about the internet at large, because I remember talking to the, the academics who were on the, uh, uh, you know, connected to Mathematica. They were at Princeton or they were at University of Illinois, and I remember saying to them, "What's your email address?" You know, or they'd give me a card, and I could not understand how it could just be Princeton.edu. I'd say, "No, no. What service is it?" Is it MCI mail? Is it, you know, Prodigy? What, it, what is it? Uh-huh. How could it just be an address? Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure they looked at me like, you know, they, they couldn't sort of make the leap to say, we, because of, we're academia, we, you know, we have access to this thing through DARPANET or whatever. 
it just was like I, I just couldn't understand how you could just have an address. So well, that, that, okay, so <laughs> maybe I, I should ask a question about the process of doing the book because again, what we're describing with the Atlas to the World Wide Web is this is a thing that is necessary as people are like, what is this internet thing? Yes. What can I do on it? The search engines, while they exist at the time, they don't work very well. And so you literally, it's a moment in time where you do need a guide to even know what is possible. That's right. So like, how did you find what was possible and, and curate it and put it together in this book? Well, there was enough. Um, I, I, I was, I guess because I had some general awareness of the web coming up. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, during the making of this book, Mosaic changed its name to Netscape. Mm -hmm. And I remember arguing with the editors who were used to putting out annual books, mm -hmm. saying, we have to change the name mm -hmm. and we have to change the logo. We have to capture the, net, the new Netscape logo. And they said, "Oh, we'll wait till next year." Mm -hmm. And I said, "No, you yeah. cannot. Yeah. Right? This is this is you know how this thing goes." So, uh, uh, the other person's name on the book is Bob Powell. He was a friend of mine. who Was an engineer at, I think, Industrial Light and Magic at the time. So I knew he would understand. Sort of, the, they wanted a, a front end piece about explaining the web. Unfortunately, they also loved spider imagery. This was big in the early days of the web. Mm. You had lots of graphics that mm -hmm. were just mm -hmm. so hokey. But anyway, um, Bob was the one. We negotiated to have two months of ISDN time, uh, and we uh, arranged for Pacific Bell to install it at his house so that he could be there to explain to the installer like how to do it <laughs> so that we had a relatively fast connection. Uh -huh. For me, I, I mean, I did all the reviewing just uh -huh. about, so for me to sit there and look up everything. Um, that's a tangent, sorry, that I no, got that's, off of that. But no, that, that, that's yeah. the sort of stuff that I, <laughs> I, I, I want to record. Um, okay, so I am going to stab in the dark here. Um, like, my next question was to get towards Planet Out, because if I, uh -huh. but if I'm missing something important, please interject here. Um, but I, uh, Tom Riley's been on the show, so right. we've, we've had the Planet Out story uh, from his perspective. But uh, tell me how uh, this comes about. Wasn't it a, was this too early to be AOL Greenhouse stuff, but was it a project that was involved with AOL at first? And It was, and I was kind of side by side with, with him, but not involved in the, in the very early development of, uh -huh. of Planet Out. He and I had run a, a small nonprofit called Digital Queers. Right. And so that part of that, and that when was did, when did that start? I want to say ninety three, ninety three ish, ninety four. Uh, whenever, um, well, two things happened. The first one was because Tom, in particular, had a lot of connections through his working at, at Mac companies. Uh, Mac World Expo was a big, you know, event in San Francisco. It, it used to be in Boston too, and. Um, so he wanted partly a social gathering, but he also thought of the notion of let's help these various gay and lesbian organizations, the national organizations around the country, um, get some decent computer equipment and software. His idea was go around the show and, and get some pledges of support and some hand-me-downs that were better than the hand-me-downs that not any nonprofit typically mm -hmm. had in those days, if they had anything. Um, and so that was sort of phase one. And I must say a sort of motley collection of software and equipment came in that wasn't probably well suited to any one mm -hmm. organization. But 
somewhere in there very quickly came the AOL discs. And so then the notion was go, a bunch of us who would basically volunteer would go to the, the national conferences of uh, some of these organizations and do training for the teams and the staffs of, of the organizations and give away AOL discs. Because AOL uh, very early on seemed gay friendly mm. and the, 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 they were chat rooms but they were also sort of online communities of various types. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was an early, there was a very early, very Can I just ask a question, because yeah. I've, I've never considered that before. You had the sense that AOL was more friendly than, say, other services were? Yes, and I think, um, I, 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 I can't say exactly how this awareness came to be, but, but the woman who ran the AOL gay and lesbian community lived in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. Her screen name was Quirk. Mm. Her, her actual name was Michelle, I can't remember her last name. And um, she purposely kept herself as, as quirk, as sort of a mm -hmm. slightly mysterious online presence. Pseudonymous. Yeah, yeah. but she ran, um, it was a super active, super active group. And it was driving uh, adoption of mm -hmm. AOL mm -hmm. to, to some degree. Yeah. And Tom was already friendly with Steve Case and uh, had various connections to him, and it was all pretty informal in those days. And so they had talked about it. I mean, Steve was aware of this too. I think at the time, I mean, there's a long history of, I think, gay and lesbian people being online mm -hmm. uh, because it was, it could be private, it could, you know, you could be anywhere and, right. uh, you know, sort of try out new ideas for yourself. But um, AOL was at a point where it wanted adoption. Yeah. And um, in those heady days, you know, giving out discs as Jan Brandt uh, engineered, you know, became mm. became the thing. So DQ people would then go to these conferences and give away, you know, hundreds and hundreds of discs. I think I think uh, Tom and I spoke to that to a certain degree about not just that there's a certain period where everyone has to learn how to live online, so that then at the time what would be considered marginal communities are sort of the pioneers in this because it yeah. offers the ability to do that, to, to right. build community. Um, and to connect if you're in rural areas to, you know, sort of try on a new notion of yourself, maybe you, or learn from people exactly. who are already there. Yeah. So that learning, I can have a different identity online or I can craft a different sort of identity online than you know, yes. my uh, offline identity. You know, before... Um, the AOL disc, there was Fidonet, mm -hmm. which was created by Tom Jennings. Mm -hmm. And if I'm not mistaken, he's gay. Mm -hmm. And he, he I, I sort of learned this history a little bit piece, piecemeal and by osmosis, that once again, there was, there was the same kind of idea, or P-Star mm -hmm. uh, groups, I guess, Usenet groups, um, same thing, sort of came from this same era of sort of, here were safe places to gather. Right and 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 then Quirk uh, and I'm sure of the other services began to do this too would have real life meetups mm -hmm. in different places you know in different cities and so on I remember going to the one before the march on Washington in 1993 mm. that was at a hotel off of Dupont Circle that was the AOL mm. whatever it was called maybe it was just the gay and lesbian group I don't remember yeah. Interesting. All right, um, uh, let's head back towards yes. uh, uh, Planet Out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Um, so you're, you know Tom, you're doing these uh, digital career right. groups and things like this, and so then um, how does that lead to uh, the, so, the website and the community? So Tom was developing this, um, and he had enlisted several talented young guys to do programming and development of it. Um, Eric Mueller, Christian Williams, David Stazer. And um, he, he was really doing this on his own. I wasn't particularly involved in it. Uh, and I, you know, I didn't know where it was going to go, but I was continuing to do my freelance consulting, yeah. writing, and yeah, yeah. and um, that's probably somewhere there's when I got one or two of these columns, and I was doing these roundups of websites and that sort of thing. Um, and so, anyway, he's he's developing it. It wasn't until they had gotten their funding from Sequoia, and had hired, I guess, the CEO, John Huggett, um, when I then was interested in applying for a job because because then it was more real. It wasn't just my yeah, friend and yeah, his yeah, yeah. startup and who knew how it was going to go, but it seemed it signified a, a more real thing and it was an editorial job. Okay, yeah. It, it was executive producer of the site, which was essentially kind of the uber managing editor of the thing. So again, I would reference uh, listeners other episodes about uh, like iVillage, the Nancy mm -hmm. Evans ones. So the concept is for these early websites, everyone thinks it's like what AOL tried to do. We need to bring Cindy Smith over. We need to bring content from offline over to online. Right. And so you're, the idea is to produce columns and articles and content and things like that. That's right. And that's what your job was? Yes. yes. Yeah. Uh, and writing and things like that. Um, did uh, a lot of people that I've talked to about this discover, well, no, people might come for the columns, but they stay for the other people and the chatting and the community and things like that. that yes. I mean, at the time, I think those were all draws because there wasn't, there were a lot of magazines. I mean, paper magazines have complexities that online yeah. didn't, especially if you weren't out. Right. But but in any case, not you might get magazines intermittently or late or something. So here was a place to have columnists and, and articles, the idea at the time was, you know, for people who didn't have enough gay anything in their life, like here was a whole lot of everything, yeah, mm -hmm. and yes, community was a driver, but so was content, I would yeah. argue, and it was fun for me to find, um, pay very little, but I think we paid something, but we, you know, would, would, would pay for uh, material, um, so it was fun to find sort of essentially young, unpublished, uh, you know, writers, and uh, I think got, we even got into cartoons and whatnot. Mm. Um, so, yes, uh, over time, I think, the whole notion of community, I mean, it, it's changed a lot since, but at the time, um, content was a draw. Um, so this is 96, 97-ish? 96, 97, and I didn't last very long. Right. Uh, I, I think I was employed six months, and then John Huggett, the CEO, fired me because mm. I was too loyal to Tom, who had been banished, mm. and you know that whole story. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Do you go to Upside Next, or is there something else? I did I go to Upside Next. Yeah, well, tell yeah. me the story, because I, one of the things that I did 
for the book is go to the actual library and find actual physical copies of things like Upside and Industry Standard. Yeah. Yes, exactly. There's yeah. a bunch of stuff that's gone down the memory hole. Yeah. Um, yeah. From this period, especially. Uh, but you know, the story of Upside uh, and a couple other other of these publications that I named is kind of the story of the bubble because these are it all is. publications that are trying to capture this energy. Certainly, so, Industry Standard. Yeah. Yeah. Tell Upside. Me. Upside was a little earlier, because it had, had started known about soon, it. Right, right, right. Yeah, it was more. It was kind of the business of technology, right. the business side of technology. Not a bad. Thing I think to the cover. first issues that I found were from like ninety three, maybe even ninety two. It could yeah. be. Yeah, it, it was around a little earlier, as I I think it was bi monthly magazine, mm-hmm. maybe it, independently published. I think, and uh, I don't remember who the owners were at first, and the first editor that I'm aware of was a guy named Eric Nee, and he was known for very provocative, interesting uh, Q&As with, mm-hmm. you know, executives and founders and whatnot. Yeah. Uh, sort of some of the big names in tech at that time. Which, again, seems obvious today, but kind of wasn't at the time. Right. It wasn't. Yeah. That's That right. sort of entrepreneur porn culture. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, everyone's like, sit yeah. down with me, tell me how you founded this company, and or, right. or also tell me what you're doing, what is the next thing, like... That's the thing that struck me about finding those interviews is it's like, well, yeah. this is like not something that was common. No, and, and also they weren't founders. They, they may have been founders, but they were more like, you know, it would be like John Chambers at yeah. Cisco yeah. or Scott McNeely at Sun or something like that. Steve Case was mm-hmm. a, was a mm-hmm. cover. Mm-hmm. They weren't uh, like young bro founders as we might now. Because that wasn't no. the, the thing yeah. then either, right? No, that's yeah. right. There weren't a lot of... Um, Startups that got uh, dorm room and, startups. Yeah, 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 exactly. So I joined. So Upside had been around. Uh, by the time I joined, my old friend David Bennell, uh, who was on the board of Upside, had taken it over. There'd been some sort of um, change of management. I don't remember, uh, but the some of the original people behind it stepped away. Mm-hmm. And so David came in, installed a different editor named Richard Brandt, and uh, then he and I were still friendly and we're still talking, and he was interested in kind of shaking it up, and he said, "Um, I'd love to hire you to be the executive editor, which at that time meant, uh, or in that place, meant the editor of the rest of the magazine besides the the feature, Mm -hmm. sort of the front of the book stuff, editing the columns and I loved it as far as that went I lo- I loved editing I loved working with uh, writers I loved coming up with ideas unfortunately the best days of Upside were already past which I quickly I suspected and I, I quickly saw um, it, there was bad management at the company to be honest and also I think just at that time probably it was 97 when I left but just at that time you know ad dollars were getting harder to get for these kinds mm-hmm. of magazines. And, and this didn't have any big publisher behind it, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It was just independent. So it, it started going down, down, down. Meanwhile, I, I was there and I, I, learned, I learned a lot, um, but I was increasingly interested in what was happening online, which was picking mm-hmm. up. And so my love of content uh, led me to the first of my um, kind of co- online content jobs. 
I went to one of the first um, what were called interactive firms. And basically, uh, this one was Studio Archetype. It had come out of Clement Mock Design. Clement and was an early, early designer at Apple. Um, so Studio Archetype was one of the first sort of um, stops for a lot of brand names to get their first website. So everybody, all these companies now realized, oh, we have to have something on the web. Mm-hmm. And so it was like, you know, the biz dev guys basically were like taking phone calls <laughs> because everybody needed this and, and uh, Studio Archetype had sort and of crucially, a product. they need to find the people that know how to how do to this. How to do it, Like yeah. it's not, you, yeah. you throw a rock on the street and you'll hit somebody that knows it. No, that's like, right. Who's the who, who are the people that know what this online stuff even is? That's right. And, and how to do it. And not all designers did, but there were a subset of, of designers and this kind of new area of information architecture, as it was mm-hmm. then called, was coming up. And that really interested me, sort of, if you don't have page constraints, uh, and how do you help people find information online, mm-hmm. um, you know, and make it useful? I mean, I was thinking of that. I cared about that before I heard of Google, which yeah. is maybe good for me. I don't know. But uh, I, I thought this is really an interesting area to learn about. Yeah. And so I joined that firm. to First, I was head of the, the project management team who managed the client projects and uh, then moved into a role as head of the, the content people who were on the uh-huh. client teams. Who are some of the clients that you're working with in those days? Uh, let's see, IBM, UPS, uh, Realtor.com stands out. I don't remember a lot of retailers, mm. um, although there probably were some. And you think, again, today, you say, well, why doesn't IBM have their own team? Well, they. they they might not. They, not I mean, they, then, yeah. And they might not be able to identify the people that even in their organization would That's know right. how to do this sort of thing. That's right. So. It was it was very new. And none of these sites, I'm sure, were any in any way sophisticated, mm-hmm. right? But Studio Archetype did have uh, developers on staff as well as sort of what would now be front-end developers, you know, people who knew enough about coding to put something together. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, no, uh, very few companies had any kind of in-house resources, or if they did, they were technology companies that had no design shops. Right, right, right. <laughs> so uh, all of those companies, like organic and, and uh, yes, yeah, vivid, um, they either uh, die when the bubble bursts, or they get sucked up into somebody else, and they. Be, what, what was the result? Studi- so Studio Archetype got bought by Sapient, uh-huh. which was you know, a systems integration firm. Right. And it did well for, it was smart of Sapient to buy a creative uh-huh. team. Um, it was like pain for the creative people because we quickly learned, I mean, I didn't, I hadn't known this before, you know, these systems integrators are like, we need four people with five years of C++ to go to Dallas for three months. Mm-hmm. Well, you can't really do that with creative people. Mm in the same way it, it's just not you know and it, it it just it was a it was a tough acquisition uh sapient made a lot of money out of it clement mock did um and you know of my friends at studio archetype only a few stuck it out at sapient for any any length of time a few years at most um but all those other firms sapient Scient, viant <laughs> they all were doing the, the same thing yeah yeah um so uh, we sh- probably should uh, start to head towards Google. Yes. But uh, th- the way to get there that I found interesting is that 
So just give me a little color, personal, anecdotal of the bubble bursting, of everyone being out of work, because I think that this is, again, and we'll, believe me, we'll talk about your book, too, at some point here, too. <laughs> but um, the way that you get to Google, and correct me if I'm wrong, is it is sort of like uh, networking when everybody's out of work and everyone's looking for what's the next yeah. thing they can do. And so, please. Yes. So the bubble did burst in the Bay Area around 2000. I had left Studio Archetype to join a startup. The startup was called Violet.com. Mm. No N in Violet. Mm -hmm. um, it was an early online retailer similar to Red Envelope, mm. which back then was its main competitor. Mm -hmm. uh, they had $3 million in VC money, and uh, two women had started it. One of them had a technical background. Um, I foolishly... I was interested in a startup and I would once again be executive producer of the, the content side. I'd been one of their early customers, I like them. Um, but my um, powers of prognostication <laughs> failed me because uh, after being there four months, the whole thing shut down because they couldn't get a second round of funding. Mm. They'd had a VC telling them, get big fast. Right. So they were, an 18 person company talking about bus ads in New York. Right. You've raised was, three million, spent two million on ads. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was absurd. So, anyway, they couldn't get a second round. So, in um, April of 2000, uh, they shut down. And I feel like it was the canary in the coal mine because not long after then, lots of things sort of halted or yeah. were shut <laughs> or just suddenly nobody was hiring. Mm -hmm. That was the first time I'd seen in however many years I'd already been in the Bay Area. I mean, just nothing was happening. Mm -hmm. And Someone uh, told me that, like, traffic on the... You could get... Oh, no, you on could the 101. Get, yeah, yeah, the 101, suddenly, you can get, you yeah, get in yeah. where you want. There's no traffic jams. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah it, was, it, was, um, it was pretty tough. And everybody I talked to, they didn't all lose jobs, but either they were hanging on to jobs or, you know, the, the ones they were interviewing for... No, we you know we put those plans on hold, that kind of thing. Right. And um, so I started a support group for people who were like me, sort of looking for work. And we met to talk about our resumes and our elevator pitches and any contract work leads we had, that kind of thing. We we did that for a while. And somewhere in there, I realized I need to call my old friend Cindy, mm -hmm. who I'd worked with at yeah. IDG. Right. Um, she had recently left Apple to take a job with a startup called Google mm -hmm. in 99. And um, I visited her a couple times in Mountain View and I knew about Google and I had actually reviewed Google, the search engine for Computer Currents or one of the publications I wrote for. And the striking thing about Google was it, it just worked. It worked. <laughs> and the first, the first 25 search engines had not just worked. It's funny that you always have to underline that. Like, that was the thing, yeah. is that they literally did not work. I mean, you could find things on AltaVista and, and things. But this idea that I have any, any question that pops into my head, where was Tom Pettyborn? And boom, you can have an answer in two seconds, and it's going to be the right one. Yeah. That, that, they cracked that. Yeah. And that's a miracle. Yeah, it really was. In fact, my one TED stage appearance was before Google. I had to be in 98. It was something they haven't done really since, but uh, Werman wanted a panel about search engines that I moderated on mm. stage. 
Google wasn't there, yeah. right? It was yeah. like Dogpile and Northern yeah. Light. Yeah. And was that the year that um, what's his name uh, uh, demoed GoTo? Oh yes, maybe. Right. Yes. Um, um, yeah, I know who you mean. Yeah, I do too. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, right, right. Which is an infamous one because he was almost hissed off the stage. For, yeah. 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 Um, sorry, I interrupted. Anyway, yeah. Um, so uh, back to my friend Cindy. Now yes. at a startup called Google. You know, I got in touch with her. It was probably two thousand one. I mean, this thing went on for a while. It, it it took probably the better part of a couple of years, I think, for the downturn to sort of turn mm -hmm. back. Anyway, I'd, I'd been in touch with her. I'd called her once, and she said, um, I said, do you need anybody? And she said, we just hired a marketing writer, but I'll let you know if, if you know, we need more. Well, a couple months later, she did call me back, and she said, um, we actually could use your help. Come down and meet the team and, and just know that it's not my decision alone. Mm -hmm. You know, other people have to like you, and mm -hmm. I understood that. So I did go down, and I was really desperate for work at this point. I mean, I had bought a place, and I was scraping by. I was borrowing from my mom. It was, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it was yeah, it was not a good time. So this is 2002, 2003 maybe? Yeah. 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 Okay. So they're in the they're in the Plex at this point, and uh, they're not in the Plex. When okay. I first went, they were a, a little office park um, nearby okay. um, on Shoreline right, Boulevard right, right, and right, Mountain View, right, right. Uh, but not quite the Plex yet. Before they moved uh, into the um, the what, Sun Campus, right? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, um, sorry. So anyway, I I went down September two thousand two, September three two thousand two. I remember um, met the team, and basically people were very nice and said, "How soon can you like can you help with this op ed?" Can you help with this? Can you help with this? And I said yes. And so uh, I just signed up as an hourly employee, and my thought was, well, I'll, I'll mostly work from home. And within a couple of weeks, I realized I, I need to be there, and I want to be there. And by the way, I want a job there mm -hmm. uh, because I loved what their mission was, and I thought these are nice people, and I'm desperate. Mm -hmm. All those things. So I just started commuting and plugging myself into everything I could get my hands on to So you're on. not, because eventually your role is editorial director, but at, not, you're not brought on to be the editorial no, director. No, no, was, it was like a, a marketing writer. And at that time, uh, the team was called corporate marketing. So mm. it included very, I mean, hardly any marketing, not, not at all like today. Um, PR, uh, translation, they were kind of all together in one, in one team. And so um, I was. I did some of the first uh, customer, you know, sort of stories for AdWords mm. when they came out, and the first AdWords newsletter mm. for, um, you know, uh, I guess clients that were that were buying it. But I also did sort of commentaries by different engineers they were trying to profile, and I just I just did. I was a utility writer, without leading the witness, as it were. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Am I right to get the sense that maybe that this is still so early on in that company that you're, you might be helping them learn how to do these things for the first time, like these these outreach like you're describing and um, uh, PR outreach, but also like describing product and like uh, yeah. user success stories and things like that? Yes, because, um, yes, they didn't all, I mean, people had different backgrounds, product marketing people or product uh, management people, you know, different people around the company had they they had their own specific needs I remember with the newsletter for example um, I went through I swear 26 versions of 
version of edition one mm. because they kept wanting to put something else in it. And I kept saying, you know, a newsletter is a periodical. <coughs> You're going to have more than one. Like, let's ship this one and move on to the next one. And there were people who just didn't, they didn't understand that sort yeah. of, it's going to have a frequency to it. And so, yes, I probably was bringing some sense of all I'd learned about kind of, you know, useful content and editorial rules of the road and that, that sort of thing. So had they bought Pyra before you came on? No, no. Okay. Uh, they hadn't. And when they did, I immediately enlisted a couple of colleagues on the PR team and said, this is what we should be using, Blogger, mm -hmm. for corporate kind of output from the company. Because Google was never really a press release type company, they didn't like them. They didn't hadn't they put out a handful probably. This is what I'm saying. Them learning to be a grown up company. Yeah, of, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. And and so uh, there was no real objection uh, to it. It was more about well, how do we make it work? Because Blogger wasn't uh, you know on Google systems yet, and you know there's a whole kind of rebuild that you have to. Did do. Did you have experience with blogging yourself personally? No, but I knew about it. Okay. You know, uh, I don't think I'd used, I'd already, I, I knew enough about what, what was happening, this mm -hmm, whole mm -hmm. sort of. It was more that you, there were journal. people that you read rather than you had your own personal blog. Yes, and I knew that this was an easier way to publish. Uh -huh. And so to me, that was the appeal, to have something be faster. And I thought, this reflects Google. Mm -hmm. So nobody objected. Uh, there wasn't a lot of understanding of how it would actually work. And in the beginning, it was painful to post because since it wasn't secure, mm -hmm. the, you know, the blogger software, we had to go through a, like a push, you know, from the corporate system. So it went from blogger to the corporate system and there would be delay. So we'd say like, where's that post? And they'd be like, oh, the, we had a, you know, we had a fail. We had to kind of redo because it wasn't a direct sort of like hit the button and publish system in the beginning. And I'm sure I bugged. Uh, Jason Goldman and some of the blogger guys endlessly because and they weren't used to this either they were used to this is what you do on blogger mm -hmm, you know you mm -hmm. hit you hit publish and you and it's live and so here we had this clunky thing in the middle until eventually um, it was rebuilt mm -hmm. uh, you know according to Google standards but it took a while to get the blogging machine up and going but in the beginning um, I was um, I became, the, the guy who was nominally the marketing head was Doug Edwards, who left in 2005. So I then became, I inherited the sort of, and developed the process for publishing and doing it quickly. Mm -hmm. um, and that always worked amazingly well at Google. Many other companies had told me, we can't get through legal, we can't do uh, this and that, but. I'm gonna yeah. ask about that in a second, because it does become the face of Google is not, but like that, that sort of is the official Google blog and adopting that as their way of communicating to the world yeah. did a lot to shape people's perceptions of Google as being like, we're just sort of these open, we're, we're, we're just people just like you and we're, we, we want to do these great right. things. And like, so the, was that already the culture and then this was just a perfect channel for channeling that culture or did that help shape how Google presented itself to the world? Well, I think both. I think initially my thought had been, oh good, I'll get to run an editorial team. Mm -hmm. And no, that never really turned out to be true because Google was already pretty flatly distributed as far as 
you know, the product manager takes center stage for the thing the product manager's in charge of, as opposed to being top down. Mm -hmm. Sergey and Larry weren't really interested in, they were certainly not interested in executive blogging. Mm -hmm. And I remember the blogger team at that time was the ones who had come in with the acquisition were used to the idea that a blog is an individual voice. And they said to me originally, this, this, it can't be corporate. Mm. And I said, it's just a publishing platform. It's, it's not, it's, it's not shaped, you know, you, you don't, you can't determine that. Um, it, it can be a company as well. But I think in their minds, they were thinking company equals like PR voice. Faceless, stenatorium. Right. And, yeah. And, and at Google, the notion, I mean, it was never said to me explicitly, but it was the product manager for, you know, the product is the name that's going on the post. And in many cases, the product manager would at least draft the post, yeah. which I would encourage because yeah. they were the subject matter experts. Yeah, and that's, this is what I'm trying to give credit to is like that is, again, has become common. Yeah. Although Steve Case did it at AOL too, like, but he, he was the one, well, no, other people at AOL did it too. But this idea that I, I'm going to sign my name to this post, I'm going to tell you about this yeah. product, you know, right. to, to, to this day, if changes are made at YouTube, you know, I'm going to be the one that's going right. to announce it to the community and things like that. Right, yeah. right. It was a way of, you know, of not being top down. And at the same time, um, wanting to be informative again from, here's the person who knows or who led the initiative or mm -hmm. whatever it is. Mm -hmm. um, and that generally has, has held up. But I think in increasingly important is the ability to quickly apologize, mm. recognize there's an outage or something's gone wrong, yeah. we're looking into it. That became then uh, a really key part of this that I think Google was always pretty much always on the right side of in terms of acknowledging problem we're going to say something because the whole culture is right. speeding up around you know all this publishing stuff. I just stuff. spoke to Matt Cutts a couple months ago oh, here yeah, so yeah. like again uh, I am the face of I'm reaching out to yes. the SEO community and yeah. yeah 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 and he was he was a wonderful example of an early Googler who knew how to do it was very trustworthy nobody ever he didn't show his blog to mm. anybody in mm -hmm. PR and mm -hmm. everybody trusted him yeah. Because he was amazing that way. He he yeah. knew he had just the right tone, but it was that sort of spirit that the blog was meant to also capture. What about because I saw the talk at Google that you did recently? I believe that the lawyers did have some issues around the time of the IPO. The timing, yes. yes. Well, say everybody agreed is business as usual before an IPO. That's fine. So announcing a product that has already you know, been acknowledged as existing, like no surprises essentially on a blog. But the thing was, the lawyers had agreed in principle to it, and then I think there was a little anxiety about you know, this, this notion of a, of a company having a blog was, was unusual, and then there were SEC you know, mm -hmm. concerns about this, and so they basically really slowed things down until the IPO they didn't say no, but no blogging. They just said it absolutely has to be the most, you know, kind of anodyne. <laughs> and that's why we had recipes from Charlie's Kitchen, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> in, the, in the beginning, it took a little bit. Um, Probably the Playboy interview had some effect, too. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, some of the other initiatives, um, 
at, at Google. I think you, uh, the um, Zeitgeist, you might have been yeah. involved with as well. Oh my God! So, in the early, this was something where I did learn from an engineer. So, there had been, and this was one of those things I volunteered to pick up on. There had been some kind of intermittent, like, search trends on Google. Uh, thing that had been published intermittently or maybe it had been monthly but it had fallen off because the person who did it wasn't around. I, I can't remember but there was it was like once a month and so I offered to um, pick it up or somebody said it would be good to pick up again. So I was introduced to employee number eight uh, who was a wonderful engineer uh, named Amit Patel and he was so great because he could explain to me a, a lot of things about how the index worked, about how what, what the significance of a search spike was as opposed to like a everyday searches. So that's the simplest explanation for why you don't want as part of any kind of trends like weather. Mm. Because weather is a constant that mm. people are searching for, right? But you want the things that have an unusual activity and that tells you like what's unusual that's that's sort of like bubbling to the surface. Out of, yeah. 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 And so in the er, <laughs> in the very early days, um, I would get access to a, a super raw index of queries. Super raw. And it was just a list of words with some numbers attached to each one that I didn't understand. I would print out it worked out with with Amit that I would I would print out like the first fifty pages, and go through with a highlighter and like different colored pencils or something to try and come up with some interesting patterns. Like I think these are music terms maybe, or this is something in the news, or you know it was it was really hard to determine what was what. But I'd go through it, show it to him. He'd explain how something was. Uh, maybe not so much a spike, but I was trying to come up with little categories, and probably the Wayback Machine has some of these if you go back, because we did do it monthly, and it was based off of like literally a paper printout mm. of the thing. It led eventually to what be, what was called Google Zeitgeist, which eventually became, I guess, Google Trends, mm-hmm. um, so that you could search for anything anywhere, because it, we were kind of limited by either English language, global, something like that, because it was just too hard to determine. And Google was already in at least 30 languages at that time, so it was really hard, would have been hard to figure this out for all the languages around the world. But um, So we, we just started with English and kind of did trends about like popular culture and some news and politics that w- that we could find to make and sense And then of. again, when you say, you know, this is our own internal data, it might be interesting to people if we throw that out and show it to them as well. Yeah. And, and, and people are just like, yeah, sure, why not? Yeah, yeah. Okay. These were always, I mean, Google still, it was growing at, a, <clears throat> I'm sure, a very healthy clip, but it was ways to show, like, here's the interesting stuff that Google search is aggregated. Yeah. You know, tell us about what, what's going on and led not too long after that to, like, Google flu trends, for mm-hmm. example, and, and other things. Um, before we leave Google, that made me think of a question I should have asked earlier. Um, did you ever 
were you ever able to, maybe Larry and Sergey themselves or whoever, were you ever able to sit down with someone and be like, explain to me, articulate to me Google's values as a company and what, we're, what, we, what, what the face is we want to show the world? I, I felt like I absorbed that. I, mm. I don't, I mean, maybe because I was there early enough, it was already, um, don't be evil, was already mm-hmm. established. Actually, it was something that Amit had, you know, kind of been part of. I felt I understood it, mm. um, and it wasn't, the interest was not how do we show ourselves to the world, it's sort of like, I mean, people felt like they were on a mission, mm-hmm. and it was a good mission, and they had passion for it, and it was about all the world's information and to make things useful and to improve the world, improve society, improve, you know, um, how people learned and, you know, did other things in the world because of what they had been able to learn or access or get through Google uh, or do through Google. I, I felt like I just I just absorbed that and mm. I felt like I understood it and it probably it worked because it's made me more or less a Google loyalist mm-hmm. even to today. Mm-hmm. So I grieve when I see mistakes happening but uh, you know or you know concerning things but I think the end of the day, those things are going to prevail, which may be wrong, but yeah, uh, maybe yeah. we'll come back and talk about a little bit about that in the end. But, uh, um. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com/slash/metaverseimpact. Getting us to Twitter, you yes. launched the first uh, Google Twitter account, official Google Twitter account. I did. So I was still at Google. Right. This was 2009. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I'd been keeping an eye on, I mean, I, I knew the guys who'd been at Blogger who left Google, mm-hmm. who went to eventually start Twitter. And I thought, at first I thought, this is just these guys talking about, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm downtown, I'm yeah, where are you, yeah. you know. But I, I kept an eye on it because, again, it's another interesting publishing platform. And by 2009, I thought there were a lot of tech reporters already using it, as, as you might expect. And so from my vantage point on the Google comms team, I felt like Google should be there because it's a techie thing. The tech reporters are there. And Google has kind of rep- reputation as a, as a techie place. Like, I had done a couple of the talk like a pirate day mm-hmm, post mm-hmm. for for Google. Yeah. It, this was just part of the tech culture at the time, and so I had had to make the case to my colleagues uh, on the comms team. They weren't all uh, sold on the idea. You know, they they felt like by now we you know we have enough channels. We don't really need another channel. And I explained about the reporters, and uh, then then the argument was we don't have headcount. I said, you don't need headcount. I can do it. Mm-hmm. You know, this mm-hmm. isn't a 24-7 job, mm-hmm. uh, especially then. And so, um, uh, they, you know, they trusted me enough to run it. Biz Stone had reserved at Google. Hmm. Uh, you know, they'd whitelisted a bunch right, of sure. names for us. So um, I worked with with him or his team to, you know, make get it transferred over, whatever, so that I had access to it. And uh, and then I just, you know, by then I'd been at Google long enough. I knew, I took it very seriously. I was not going to make any, there, there was no personal stuff, of mm-hmm, course. It mm-hmm. was all about 
reflecting mm -hmm. Google and uh, going a little bit, but not too far beyond what was being posted. So it was sort of, you know, reinforcing. Yeah, amplifying. Yeah, amplifying. Uh, and then you know, occasionally there would be. It was sort of I had to do the rule, make up the rules along the way, but I. I just was very careful about not making any mistakes. And within, you know, I don't know, a few days, we had a million followers. And so then people began to understand, okay, it's a, it's, we're reaching maybe some of the same people and some different people. And then that led to a proliferation of Google Twitter accounts. Mm -hmm. So that, I, I basically managed the process for that sort of mm -hmm. thing, not all the accounts. So how and why do you go to Twitter? I, by 2011, I wasn't really doing much new at Google. It was kind of in the same job, and um, a number of my friends had left. And although I, I always thought, I'll, this is where I'm going to like end my career, I also, you know, I thought, well, maybe I'm not, you know, but I mean, maybe there's other things that are interesting. Twitter was now more interesting to me, um, in part, to be honest, because the founding team had stepped away. Yeah, um, this is that period when they've all they've all gone left. Yeah, I, I, they were nice guys. Yeah, uh, I didn't. I hadn't known Jack, uh -huh. but I'd known Biz and Ev, and um, they were nice guys. But I didn't really think they could really manage uh, a company that was growing. They did, they weren't executives. I mean, right. they, they didn't have business side management. So that had changed, and there was a, a COO and a CEO, Dick Costello, mm -hmm. had come in and. Ali Raghani was there, so it had, it was professionalizing and you know kind of cleaning up from the early startup days. So it, so it did interest me, uh, and I did get hired there as an editorial director, similar kind of role, but so different at Twitter because they weren't they didn't hadn't had a happy story to tell. They didn't have like constant run of products and product stories like Google had. They'd been avoiding. Mm. Talking about anything for a mm -hmm. while, they'd had they'd had kind of a troubled ride, and after Biz, they didn't have a kind of a name or a face, so they were used to everything being signed the Twitter team. And I remember Jack asked me what I thought of that, and I said it's tantamount to being anonymous. Right. I, it just well, and so doesn't make sense for the product that everyone else is using the way they're using it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so I it was a little more of a struggle to get established there because. Uh, of many reasons, people were not used to um, the idea of individual signers on post. I, it, it took longer to sort of get my hands around it, and I never really could get my hands around t at Twitter, the Twitter account, um, because again, for a long time, it had been very conservative. It couldn't. It couldn't. It was hard to be cheeky or jokey mm. or anything on the platform because it would get misinterpreted so easily, not for today's political reasons, right. but just for, you know, language and culture reasons. Um, Literal, the hard. character count reasons, it's yes, harder to be, too. it's harder yeah. to be uh, nuanced in the, with the character limits. Yes, exactly. And then at, at the time it was 140 yeah. and, um, you know, links and uh, maybe not images, but images weren't common in, in, in even those days in 2011. Um, you are, do you evolve, every time I've asked you, were you involved in early blogging, were you, like, like I've known you, of you, 
for years because of your Twitter account. And, uh -huh. and we'll get into eventually how you're a uh, networking and connector person. Right. But um, <laughs> is, did you evolve into that at Twitter? Or is that something that you started to do? I'm, the, I'm the, saying Karen putting yourself oh, yeah. in a, as a public face. When uh, did that begin to happen? I, I would, that probably was through the Twitter account which I had started very slowly, I think in also 2009. Mm -hmm. and, but while I was running at Google, um, you know, I, I started to just experiment more myself with my own account, KBox, and just, Google wasn't particularly fussy at that time about uh, personal accounts. I mean, I don't think necessarily they still are, I helped write the employee communication guidelines mm -hmm. at Google, and in those days it was more about one's personal blog mm -hmm. than it was social. But in any case, I, I was familiar with what kind of the requirements were. But I, you know, the, the further I went, and probably going to Twitter really kind of helped encourage that because people at Twitter were encouraged, of course, to have their own Twitter accounts. And the, the, um, free expression wing of the free expression party mm -hmm. or whatever the mm -hmm. the phrase was then was in full flower, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, so again, I, I wasn't worried about going really out of bounds, but I thought, I have been around long enough now and, you know, uh, people kind of know me and I can swing out a little bit here. I mean, I'm not going to hide my, you know, political biases and that sort of thing. Well, you know, I watched several interviews with you and stuff to prepare for this and, and uh, you know, talk to Cindy and other people that know you about this. Time and time again, it comes up over and over that you're an introvert, <laughs> self-described, described yeah, yeah. by others. And so the idea that you have made this name and reputation for yourself as I'm a connector and a community, but as a communicator, yeah. um, that didn't come naturally to you? Is that something that you had to consciously evolve yourself into or no I mean b to me being a communicator is about it, it, for me it, it took the form of writing mm. and being online you're behind a screen yeah and so to me these things were all compatible mm. I mean I, I I was networked with a lot of people because of the internet and I was uh, you know one's writing, not just mine, could reach so many more people than the days of magazines, you know. Uh, and so uh, as long as I, an introvert, I should also say, is not a shy person right. necessarily. An introvert just needs kind of time and space to think away from the crowd and away from the daily crush of business. Being in a crowd can suck energy from an introvert. Yeah, right. yeah that's right. And you have to recharge alone sometimes. That's right. Yeah. That's it, exactly. And so, to me, I can go out in the fray, you know, with uh, the best of them, but, uh, mm -hmm. you know, then I just need to sort of withdraw and kind of ponder everything before I go back out. So, no, there was no conflict at all. And, in fact... I would not have the network I have or the reach I have or the awareness or the anything if it weren't for being online for right. so long. I, it also strikes me, and I think it was your interviewer at the talk at Google that pointed this out as well, that your job has always been to go to these companies and make them extroverts to a certain degree. Uh -huh. And like Google, those are founders that are not extroverts. Right. Twitter, right. we were just describing it was yeah. a company that 
So again, being an introvert, your job and your career has been to pull people <laughs> out into the into the limelight a bit. And those who want to go, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. It's sort of like, um, and I would say this because uh, I have done a lot of um, consulting with businesses that want to be these days the term is thought leaders, right? Right. They want to be in the conversation. That's another phrase. Yeah. That's. That's all good as long as the people you have representing you want to do it and have some facility at doing it. You can't drag the ones who are resistant to it out in front and say, you're going to be our main blogger or you're going to be our name on everything. That's not going to work. So you have to have willing participants who are, are willing to put themselves out. Well, I also want to encourage, um, for the last several years, uh, Karen has been writing great stuff for Back Channel, Stephen Levy's uh, Back Channel. While that existed, while that existed, um, yeah. are, do you have a regular outlet today like that? I don't. I mean, I, I'm I'm delinquent in writing some stuff up on on my own medium. I was going to say, but by yeah. the way, there exists a great library of the last several years of great things that you've oh, uh, you. written about. Uh, but let's talk about the book, um, which came out a couple months ago. Mm -hmm. It's called "Taking the Work Out of Networking." Um, just real briefly, uh, who gave? Where did the idea to do this book come from? And again, um, I know you as this connector who knows everyone in tech and, and things like that. Um, is the idea to to tell people how to be a connector like you, or? Uh, yes, it, it is partly that. So um, the book came about, I had written one of my back channel um, stories a while back was about building a network for life. I think I called it something like that. and. Uh, you know, cycles went by, and I uh, talked to um, a New York editor, who, which led me to get an introduction to an agent, which led to a book proposal. And the idea was, uh, initially, I thought it would be like networking for introverts. Mm -hmm. There are several books on that topic, actually, quite a few. And so um, the thing that I realized was I'd like to try to break down in some detail the way I go about both meeting new people and keeping up with people mm -hmm. I know even slightly because it really is a bunch of tactics that anybody can do and in my experience it's very enriching gives you a broader worldview you have serendipitous conversations things unfold because of who you're talking to about at any given time and so let me see if I can kind of document that for other people because it's very enriching, and we're living in a world where we, we're going to have to constantly make connections and then keep them. Well, and that's one of the interesting things, I think, is that it's also a guide to this modern, there's all of these tools now, and all of these platforms, and all of these networks. It's not just, well, I'll have a LinkedIn profile, and that's, that's my networking right. done. Right. Like, it's how the various strategies of making these things actually be valuable for you. These, yeah. these tools and and even to the sense of the different strategies like don't be someone that goes out and you know comments on everything and shares every little detail or yeah, you don't have to do that like how you can <laughs> contribute and take from your networking activities in meaningful ways yeah. it's a it's just an ecosystem and I still use the word web I, I mean mm -hmm. it is a virtual web of connections and we can have more than we could ever have in the the physical world um, and we can maintain, you know, a wonderful set of relationships. And maybe this actually reflects some of my longstanding uh, love of Google. Um, 
you know, we, we, we can each like help make information accessible to each other. Mm -hmm. Kind of like, you're not gonna get the perfect answer for any question from one individual person. You're gonna piece together a bunch of search queries mm -hmm. and you're going to uh, find that one conversation leads you to somebody else that leads you to something else and that's how you sort of make your way and that's how we have to make our way in the world today because our worlds are much more fluid than they used to be. The uh, quote, I, well, I'm going to get close to it, I think one of your favorite quotes in the book is that networking is less like hunting and more like farming or yeah. gardening. Yeah. What's the idea there? Yeah. Well, so hunting, we must say, is pretty transactional. Right. You know, <laughs> sort of. <laughs> sort of zero and, sum a bit. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's how people, I think, uh, think of networking that they hate, mm. is that I've got to go into this room, I've got to, or the ballroom or the conference, and I've got to, like, Go find the perfect person, make my pitch, you know, get the get the answer I want, and you know, and that's that's the end of it. Where uh, farming or gardening are both very, depending on the scale you want to think about, very seasonal, mm -hmm. uh, you know, ongoing. You're planting, you're weeding, you're thinning, you're you're trimming, you're replacing, you know, something you're replanting in a different location. You're doing all those things uh constantly and that's what you're doing with and the, there's no the expectation of immediate reward either. no that's right exactly that's right it's more of an investment as yeah, well yeah that's right um again the book is taking the work out of networking i recommend people uh buy it if um final few questions to the degree that you're willing then i'm going to ask you to comment from your point of view mm -hmm. um twitter you haven't been there for how many years now Three, yeah. Twitter. This will be. This will be, be three. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, Twitter, in the sense that people like to argue and debate about it, as this sort of platform that is is so fascinating and so valuable to so many people. I I use nothing as much as I use Twitter, right? But then at the same time, it's this fraught with all sorts of problems. Right. Um. Do you feel like it's we're, Twitter's always going to be stuck in the mode that it's in, and it's either you have to um, you have to develop tactics to use Twitter effectively that are not harmful for you personally, or do you think that Twitter is ever going to be capable as a company to evolving to something that will be maybe a little more sophisticated as a product? I, that's a super general, <laughs> broad question. I'm basically asking. Do we think Twitter will ever get better? It will ever get better. I, I want to say yes, and I would say that one of the, that for probably lots of people, Twitter is already fine if they're following, uh, I don't know, sports or cats or mm -hmm. music or something that is not caught up so directly in the world of uh, politics and you know whatever uh, the daily hot news, yes, are, yeah. the hot button stuff. Uh, it probably is fine for that. And what's fascinating about Twitter and and complex too is you, it's your follow. It's who you're following mm -hmm. that determines yeah. what you're seeing. Exactly. And so, you know, those of us who are like news hounds, like okay, we're following too much and we're caught up in like every outrage of, of the moment. Um, but 
you don't have to be. It's just that's now the popular conception of what yeah. Twitter is. The other interesting thing is I do, I feel like some of the abuse issues they have uh, not maybe resolved, but improved reporting, improved mm -hmm. probably some of the uh, catching uh, like bad intent accounts mm -hmm. coming in, mm -hmm. things that they probably aren't going to talk about as, right. as openly, but it seems to me that fewer public complaints are going on. It doesn't mean, I mean, Twitter, like, like you know, any commenting system right. is going to have, like, at that bad scale, behavior. At that scale, it's impossible yeah. to be perfect, right? It's going to have bad behavior, and there's a lot of misunderstanding about uh, their general guidelines, which I don't think are perfect uh, by any means, but um, for a long time it was if you're saying nasty things about someone, you know, then you should be reported and off the system. And I used to have to explain to people, it's not, that's not a direct enough threat according to Twitter rules, right? That it, it used to be, and again, I think this is probably changing, that you have to say like, you know, here's your phone number, here's your street address, I'm coming to you uh, to attack you, mm -hmm. right? Okay, that's direct enough for Twitter. I believe that they're having to take a look at this because they did kick off Milo mm -hmm. uh, for not doing that directly, but saying to his followers. Exactly. You know, so there's there's a little more gray area there than I think. I mean, for me, Twitter is still a very unique platform. It does not have a direct competitor. It is, I mean, I'm, I have to say, I guess, addicted to the, the sort of real-time notion of it, not for the outrage, but just... What are people talking about right now? What what are what's going on in the world? That's what I do like about it mm -hmm. and do look to it for. Um, and it can be a funny thing as well as yeah. an outrage. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right. Here's another one that I don't even know how to frame into a question. So let me just say what I want to say, and then we'll see if I can find a question. <laughs> uh, a friend of mine that has worked at both Facebook and Google, when the you know the the walkouts at oh, Google yeah. happen. And this person says, of course that happens at Google. And sadly, that's never going to happen at Facebook, which is a comment about the different cultures. Yeah. Um, so number one, here, here's how I'll frame it. Number one, are you not surprised at all that it's Googlers that are the ones that are like, when there's something rotten in this company, we're going to stand up and fix it ourselves? Are you not at all surprised? Not, not surprised. Not surprised. Then my question would be, and again to the extent that you would want to comment on this, do you have a sense, again from Googlers that I know, that perhaps the, the management culture has changed, but the rank and file culture is still the don't be evil and there is an increasingly a disconnect there? I, I don't know that. I don't, I don't feel like it's, it's that clear cut. Okay. Partly because I don't know how a culture kind of coheres when it's eighty-five or ninety thousand people. I mean, maybe maybe they do at Disney in some way. <laughs> I don't know, but I, I don't know how many people care about the early days or the "Don't Be Evil" necessarily. Mm -hmm. It's a wonderful legacy and kind of folktale, right? In a way, I don't know how much that governs things. Although there is something there, because I agree with your friend who commented. 
I, I do think it was Googlers who had a quite effective and wonderful walkout. I actually mm -hmm. knew one of the um, people behind it, and I wrote her a note, and I said, good for you. You know, this, this really worked well. Um, but a change in, I don't, I don't see it as a change in management. If you recall, there was a lot of internal discussion earlier when Google was debating its relationship to China, mm -hmm. a couple of times, right? And uh, internal dissent and people on both sides. Uh, it wasn't like the management was all one way and everybody was every, the the rank and file was the other way. Um, there were uh, people on both sides, and I think they came to the right decision. And now, according to the Intercept. I think they've come to the right decision again. Mm -hmm. I just think it's, I understand there's a big market in China, yeah. but I just think it's just too risky a road if you have had these scruples all this time. Well, and you know, maybe that's what it is, is that it's it's not just Google. It is, a, 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 I won't name names, the quote someone said to me was, I signed up to organize the world's information. Here, let me pull that. Oh, yep, sorry. Um, I signed up to organize the world's information, and now my engineering work might be used for drone attacks. And so maybe right. it's, it's all of tech where as we move into the AI and things like this, it's like, well, he said, I feel like I was sold a bill of goods. And so, but maybe that's just the nature of where tech is going all over yeah, the place I, now. Yeah, I, I, I don't think it's like the management had an evil purpose and hid it from you when mm -hmm. you were being hired mm -hmm. as much as everything is evolving. That's what's so interesting about this kind of newfound interest in studying ethics mm -hmm. in relation to product development and, and right. technology. I'm all for that. That should be much more... Uh, for engineers, for lawyers, for you know, product managers, for everybody, let's like think these things through because I just we haven't had a time, you know, until recently when the global scale of these, uh, uh, not just the companies but the mm -hmm. technologies, mm -hmm. has had so many implications, right. right, and so many unintended consequences. So I don't, I, I just don't. It's not as simple as right. the management <clears throat> of a company. Uh, I, I always wish I could find who said this because I've used it a lot now on the Tech Meme Show or whatever, but someone said recently that computer science has never had its, you know, in, in, in physics we had the atom bomb happen and so everyone had to, as a profession, physicists had to come to terms with what they could do. Yes. We have a Nobel Prize because chemists had this moment where they realized, look at what our science can do. And it's almost like we're in the moment where computer uh -huh. scientists have to have that moment of, of reckoning where... This coding in a room could blow up the world somehow. You know what I mean? Yeah, and it's like yeah. that's the moment that it's a good we're analogy. reckoning with right yeah, now. Yeah, I think so. And I think not just the for the bad actors, but also as we're seeing on the advertising side, mm -hmm. sort of the unattended consequences of the linking of products and advertising and the ads following you around online and following you offline mm -hmm. and you know, all the rest of it. Uh I, I don't know that, I, I mean, I'm sure most people, even in the the leadership positions, did not think through sort of the, the, the adoption of the mobile phone, mm -hmm. right, and the ubiquity of online services and, and just, you know, the importance of that. I don't, I don't think people envisioned quite the, the scale. And then add to that 
the sort of connectedness of people. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think Facebook understood at all the you know the the that there could be a downside to you know the world being connected or whatever their whatever their slogan is. So yeah, it, these are all things that they just didn't exist before, and nobody, I do think, uh, uh, understood the possibility. Just as we didn't understand the possibility of someone flying a plane into a building, mm-hmm. I don't think I don't think anybody at any of these companies thought, oh, bad actors are going to legitimately use our advertising platforms in these ways. I mean. We now it seems, of course, that could happen and will happen. Well, you did spend five years telling people <laughs> buying those ads how effective they were. So, tell oh, shock that they're right. actually effective. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. So well, like, well, no bad actors. They don't advertise, right? They hack. Right. That right. was that was the notion for a long time. Yeah. Uh, Karen, I'm going to wrap it up there. Let me just thank you for such a, a wide-ranging conversation about your career, but about all of this stuff oh, generally. Oh, it's so much fun to talk about this. Thank you, Brian. If you like what you've heard on this episode, please support us by subscribing to the podcast so you can get great news stories and conversations every two weeks. And please buy the book that was based on this podcast, How the Internet Happened from Netscape to the iPhone, by me, Brian McCullough. Order it now wherever books are sold. How the Internet Happened. And if you weren't aware, I host a daily tech news podcast every weekday that comes out at 5 p.m. In that show, I tell you what happened that day in the world of tech. It's only 15 to 20 minutes long, and it's great if you love tech news. Search your podcast app for Ride Home to find the show. It's called The Tech Meme Ride Home. Thanks. Before you use AI to transform your agency, you need to begin with trust. Introducing WatsonX Governance. Helping you govern any AI as data, models, and policies change so you can scale it responsibly. Let's create AI that begins with trust with WatsonX Governance. Learn more at ibm.com federal. IBM. Let's create.